Amen. Hope you brought your Bible with you, and if you did, I would like for you to join me in the Old Testament book of Esther. Uh, I love this story, and just to kind of reset on the background, God's people are living up in the northern part, north of uh, the promised land in Persia, as living there as exiles. When the Persian king Cyrus came into power, he made a decree that all of the Jews who had been taken captive, living there as exiles, all of the Jews who desired uh, were free to go home to return to the land of promise. And while many of their fellow Jews took advantage of that freedom and made the decision to go home, back to the promised land, many returned under the leadership of Zerubbabel and went back and began to rebuild the temple. And then sometime later, other waves of Jews went back and served under the reforms of Ezra and Nehemiah, rebuilding the, uh, the walls around Jerusalem and began to work to reestablish the law under the leadership of Ezra. But historically, most of the Jews again, who had been taken off as exiles. At that time, some of them were taken off under the Assyrians. The southern kingdom were taken off under the Babylonians. And then the Persians overthrew the Babylonians. And so God's people are living in now under the rule of Persia. Most of them chose to stay right where they were, to never go back uh, to the land of Israel. I would, I'd like to invite you to uh, keep your place here in the book of Esther. Would you turn over to, uh, with me to the book of Jeremiah? Would you go there? Esther, Isaiah, then Jeremiah. And, um, and I want to read a familiar text. Uh, some of these verses will be familiar with you. Um, while these Jews are in the northern part of Persia, living in exile, God led the prophet Jeremiah to write a letter and to send a message to these exiles. And I want you to read with me in Jeremiah 29, and then we'll go back to Esther. Start with me in Jeremiah 29, verse 1. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. In other words, they'd been exiled. Verse 3, this letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the sons of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, now, this is God's word from the prophet Jeremiah to these exiles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive 
whom I caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then here's his word. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters. That you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. Pray to the Lord for it, for this region, the area where you're living, for in it, peace, you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Now, let me pause right there. So, God says, I've caused my people to be carried away as captives. And he's basically saying, you're going to be there a while. So settle in, establish homes, go about your life. And don't listen to those who tell you that you're only going to be there a short while. Settle in, pray, seek the peace of the city, seek its good, establish your lives there. But then continue to read with me. Because this has to do with where we are in Esther. Verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place, to come back to Jerusalem, to come back to the promised land. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me. When you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. They were in that position because of their sin, their disobedience, and judgment came, prophet after prophet had warned the northern kingdoms, the southern kingdom, repent, turn back to God. They refused to eat. And so God allowed all these of his people to be overthrown, taken as exiles, back into captive. But his message to them through Jeremiah is there's coming a day when I will work. And just as I placed you in exile, I will also work and I will bring you back to Jerusalem. Back to the promised land which I established in a covenant to give you. And so in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1, when King Cyrus, the Persian king, came into power, the Bible says he, God moved in his heart and he decreed freedom and allowed all the Jews to go back to the place where God said they were to be. But very few of them ever went back. 
many chose to stay right where they were in Persia. And I want to propose to you their staying as exiles, continuing to live in Persia was a sin. And while God, for those Jews who went back, while God is working through to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls and reestablish the law under those reforms, God is working with his people there. He still hasn't removed his hand upon the people, his people in Persia who were disobedient. What they do not know is even in their disobedience, their existence is about to be threatened. They're going to face the threat of genocide, of ethnic cleansing. And they don't realize that God even, because of, in spite of their sins, that God still in his providence is working out in front of them to protect them. That's the story of Esther. God is still at work. Do you remember the characters in this story? There are five listed in the text. The first is a king, Ahasuerus, we saw last Sunday, a powerful king, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, wealthy, uh, powerful, uh, self-centered, pretty narcissistic, but that's king Ahasuerus. And then his, his queen, Vashti, she is a beautiful woman, an independent thinker. And then the story, like all good stories, has a villain. The villain here is Haman, a man obsessed with success and striving to make him a name for himself in the kingdom of Persia. And then the two final characters are relatives. An old Jewish man by the name of Mordecai and his younger cousin Esther. And the Bible says regarding Esther that she had lost her parents, both her mother and father at a young age. She's orphaned and therefore she is taken in by her cousin Mordecai. And in chapter 2, verse 15, it says, And Mordecai, when he took her in, he raised her like she was his own daughter. And then the most important character in this story is one that is never mentioned in the book of Esther. God's name is never mentioned. God is never referred to. No prayers, no prophetic words, no mention of God, but he is the God of providence who is working. You remember the word providence, pro-ventia? Pro meaning ahead of or before and ventia to see. And so God's providence is he sees ahead of us. He's always out in front of us and he sees to us. God's providence. We need to stop and think. Stop and think. God knows what's ahead of you this morning. God is out in front. He knows what's ahead of you. He sees it, and he will be faithful to see to you and to care for us. Read with me Esther chapter 2, starting in the first verse. Esther 2. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel into the women's quarters under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, 
custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. This thing pleased the king, and he did so. In Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. A Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman Esther was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hegai that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai, the custodian of the women. Now the young woman, Esther, pleased him and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to, to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Each young woman's turn came in to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months preparation according to the regulations for the women for thus were the days of their preparation apportioned. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. First beauty school. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king and was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In other words, each woman, when she got her night with the king, got to pick her own outfit. Verse 14, in the evening she went... And in the morning she returned to the second, so she doesn't go back where they were before, they go to a second place, the second house of the women to the custody of Shasgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. So they were made concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called her by her name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abahel and the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter. When her turn came to go in to the king, she requested nothing but what Hegai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king, Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king 
loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. Pray with me. Father, in these moments we pray that your spirit would give us ears to hear, that we would have greater faith in you, to trust in you, God of all creation, sovereign God over all of our lives. God, speak to us, strengthen our faith to trust in you and to know you through faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray you'd speak through your word for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I woke up this morning, realized what I had done. I stood alone in the cold gray dawn, knew I lost my morning sun. I lost my head and I said some things, now come the heartache that morning brings. I know I'm wrong, I couldn't see, I let my world slip away from me, so hey, did you happen to see the most beautiful girl in the world? And if you did, was she crying? Crying? Hey, if you happen to see the most beautiful girl that walked out on me, tell her I'm sorry. Tell her I need my baby. Oh, won't you tell her that I love her? <laughs> Some of you recognize those lyrics. Many other of you, of you don't recognize them at all and have no idea who Charlie Rich is. And if you know those lyrics and you know Charlie Rich, then you're old. I, I, I was thinking about those lyrics of this text, and uh, I thought about singing it because I remember <laughs> hearing that, but I thought, no, I better not do that. I believe those lyrics capture the mind of King Lazarus. The text begins with the king in some pain. When the king's wrath, the Bible said, subsided, he remembered Vashti, his bride, the queen. Chapter 1, verse 11 conveyed that she was a beautiful queen. Once the king's anger cooled off, you remember in chapter 1, and after some time he began to settle down and he remembers the tiff, this disagreement between me, him and his bride. The Bible says he remembers what she did. Well, what did she do? Well, she refused to go along with his command. She refused to comply with it. And, and then a text says not only he wonders, he remembers what she did, but then it says and remembers what had been decreed against her. And I want to stop right there. So look at that in the very first verse. The text omits an important word. It says he remembers what had been decreed against her. It should read, he remembers what he, not what had been decreed. It should read what he had decreed against her. It's kind of a form of denial. 
Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a marker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. King Ahasuerus was led astray by alcohol, by his temper, and by poor counsel. And with his pride wounded and his ego bruised, in a state of rage, the dumb idea of banishing the queen seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Any of you kind of been there? She is banished from his presence and away from any further biblical record, and she is gone. Then beginning in chapter 2, time elapses. In chapter 1, verse 3, it says this account occurs during the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign. And if you read in chapter 2, verse 16, it says this account then occurs during the seventh year of the king's reign. And that means that four years have elapsed since this began to occur. During those four years, if you go back and you study historically anything about King Ahasuerus and the Persian Empire, we know that during that time, he had a failed military campaign against Greece. He was defeated. Do you remember who eventually overthrows the Persians? Is the Greeks. And eventually, when Jesus comes on the scene, the Romans then overthrow the Greeks. But as our text begins, the king is home. Some time has passed. He is defeated, suffered some losses, and he returns to an empty palace. No more music. No more parties, no more feasts, no more praise, and no more Queen Vashti. She's gone. Up to this point, professionally, he had been successful, but privately there is pain. There is the pain of personal remorse and failure. Perhaps he could have said, I never intended for things in my life to turn out like this. But after a series of bad decisions in the quiet of the palace, alone with his own thoughts, he remembers, he remembers his bride, Queen Vashti, and he remembers the foolish decree that he had made against her. And as you read over the text, there is this glimpse of the king's pain and remorse, the consequences of his sinful decision that begin to kick in, and it's possible that His conscience in remembering is beginning to bother him, and he's having some regrets. If only Vashti were still here. Oh, what did I do? A man with absolute authority and now is trapped by his own words. Any of you ever been there? You said something that you regretted. You made a decision that you couldn't undo, or you made a decision and your pride kept you from undoing it. I wonder how things ever got like this. If I could only go back and do things differently. A poor choice resulting in some painful consequences. And the painful consequences are often in our lives the result of either our own choices or there can be some painful consequences because of the choices of someone else or of others. But in every instance, everything remains, and this is the story of Esther, everything in whatever instant, whatever circumstances, it still remains under God's sovereign control and care. 
In this story, from the opening in verse 1 to the close in verse 18, God is working. That's the message. Through the king's sinful cravings and through Mordecai and Esther's compliance, God is working through all of it to accomplish his purposes. Perhaps sensing the king is miserable, his counselors in an effort to lift and raise his spirits, they rush to his rescue, reminding him, hey king, do you remember what you decreed years earlier? Well, let's get after that plan. Let's get after, let's cheer you up and find a new queen. It'll make you feel better, a newer, younger model. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun. And they propose in verse 2, let beautiful young virgins be sought by the king. See the king's pain, pain from poor choices, from allowing his emotions to control his life and from allowing other people to make decisions for him, from allowing pride to control him, refusing to follow his own conscience. How many of you, like me, have learned the hard way not to make decisions when you're angry, not to make decisions when you're emotionally charged? It's a sure way to make a mess of things, to hurt people and to strain relationships. Instead, when faced with a decision and conscience is stirred up and we're unsure of what's best, I'd like for you to just consider these questions when making a decision. Let me just give you some few pointers. Number one, when you're not sure what to do, you can ask yourself, will this decision that I'm about to make glorify God? Will this decision honor the Lord? Second, is the decision that I'm making according to Scripture? Is there anything in the Bible that would give me counsel or guidance regarding this matter? Third, will this decision that I'm about to make enhance my witness? Will it strengthen my testimony for God? Number four, will the decision that I'm about to make, will it bless other people? Is it in the interests, the good of others? And number five, will it help to advance somehow the gospel? And I would also add, it wouldn't hurt. It would be wise for all of us to surround ourselves with people who can help us with good counsel. Just to surround ourselves with friends, with people in our lives who would help us with good counsel. Here he is, King Hazarus showing signs of regret and remorse. Evidently, he has a conscience. He recognizes what he's done. He's feeling some pain as a result. And I want to ask you, as you continue to read the text, how does he cope with it? Well, rather than following his heart and submitting to conscience and doing the right thing, he just makes matters worse and quickly yields and goes along with these crony counselors that he has. His coping mechanism is to follow the crowd, just to do what everyone else is doing, just to ease in and go along with everything. And he moves from one bad decision to another, and I would have proposed to you he needed some new counselors. Look at verses 2 through 4. This is, and I'm going to paraphrase, this is the counsel. This is what he's advised to do. Oh, king, this is going to cheer you up to get your mind off the past. Let's set up a search committee of all men, one committee 
uh, in every area of the kingdom, men who have a good eye for the best-looking women in Persia. And let's charge these committees to gather all of these young beauties together and bring them into the women's quarters of your palace. And let's assign Brother Haggai to get all of these young women ready, 12 months of beauty school, put them through all of these treatments, six months of skin care, followed by six more months of perfume and fashion. And all when all these young virgins are prepared, verse, verse 14 is clear, oh, king, you personally test each one. Each girl will spend the night with you, and verse 4 says, and the one that you like the best, you can... Choose her to be the next queen. It's all in the upcoming season of The Bachelor of Persia. (laughs) And the Bible says the plan pleases the king. And that's exactly what they do. Can you remember a time, a season of your life when one bad decision was followed by another? Minnie and I used to tell our kids living a meaningful life as you grow up to live a life full of purpose and peace, will require you to make good decisions, choices that honor the Lord, and you will inevitably make some good decisions, some good choices, and part of life is you will also make some not-so-good ones. However, when you make some not-so-good choices, some wrong ones, and you will make some, The key is to learn from them and not go through life making the same mistakes over and over and over. You know anybody like that? They just seem like they go from one crisis to another and make one bad decision after another. When you mess up, fess up. When you mess up, fess up to the Lord and to others. It's the beauty of the gospel, isn't it? It Doesn't 1 John say, if we confess our sins to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. King Ahasuerus, he wastes the paths. He fails to learn anything from previous sins. And there are men and women going through the life just like this king. We see the king's sins, poor choices, and pain. However, verses 5 through 7 We're introduced to Mordecai and Esther, finally. And I want you to just consider their predicament. It is the pressure of compliance. The pressure of compliance. The Bible says that Mordecai's great-grandfather was alive when the Jews were carried away from Jerusalem off into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And now they're living in Persia. This is the only life that young, this man Mordecai had ever known. He had probably been birthed in Persia, grown up, been raised in Persia. Certainly the same was said of his younger cousin Esther. Verse 7 says that this young girl was a lovely and beautiful woman. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, and she's not from Mississippi. It means myrtle. That's what Hadassah means, and I thought that was interesting. In Isaiah 55, there is a prophetic reference to Myrtle, one who is coming who will stand for the Lord, Hadassah. 
Verse 8 adds, she was taken. Taken. There's no evidence in the text that she volunteered for this position. She was taken to the king's palace, added to the mix of all these other young virgin women in the empire, one to be selected and chosen by the king. Pretty horrible situation for Esther and all these other young women. They're being prepared to sleep with the king. And after it's over, verse 14 is clear. Once they leave the king's bedroom, these young women walk the walk of shame to a second place, to a permanent place, becoming one of the king's concubines the rest of their lives. And if the king never calls for them, never asks for them again, the remainder of their days would be spent in this second house. I would propose to you it's the Hotel California. You might check out from the king's presence, but you're never going to leave. It's interesting in verse 11, the Bible says that every day Mordecai paces and paces, and it says he's concerned about Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. In verse 9, what Mordecai cannot know is that Esther finds favor with the king's attendant, Hegai. And it, it says that she receives additional beauty treatments over and above what was allotted. She is given her own personal maid servants. And third, she is placed in the finest accommodations in the women's quarters. And don't overlook the fact in verse 15, she also finds favor in the sight of everyone who saw her. Now, reading through this text, I have some questions. They're not really given answers. But these are questions as I read through this story. Did Mordecai, cousin Mordecai, the one who had raised her and loved her as a daughter, did he try and do anything to prevent Esther from being taken? In other words, was he covered with bruises and cuts trying to resist and fight against these men who took Esther away? We don't know. Was Esther herself, was she kicking and fighting against being captured or did she go along with it? Verse 10, why did Mordecai why did he ask her not to tell anyone? Why did he ask her not to reveal her ethnicity in verse 20? And in verse 20, it says she does follow his charge. She never reveals to anyone in the Persian Empire that she's a Jew. She never makes that known to anyone. Kind of keeps her faith, her religious beliefs, her faith in God, kind of just keeps it all silent. Why, why was that proposed? Was it to keep Esther safe? Was Mordecai afraid that something would happen to her if she revealed that she was a Jew? Or was it to increase her chances of winning the beauty pageant? We don't know. And what was Esther thinking when she was brought into the king's harem? Was she excited? Oh, what an opportunity for me. I'll be married to the king and live in royal splendor and, and have all, everything I could ever want. So is she sad or sad? Is she cooperative, resistant, happy, blessed? We don't know. In other words, 
the question as you read through this text is, did Mordecai and did Esther compromise their faith? Did they compromise their faith? Was it because they were doing whatever they needed to do in order to survive in Persia? Or did they compromise their faith because they're happy thinking about the possibilities of a better life here in Persia? The same questions could be asked of you and me. Are we hesitant as followers of Christ to reveal our identity? Do we compromise in order to fit in for a better life? story makes the point that neither Mordecai or Esther developed any kind of plan. There is no plan. No plan to rescue the Jews. They don't even know they need a plan. They don't even know that the Jews are about to be threatened. They know nothing about the future. They know nothing about this genocide to their people. No thought of taking a stand for God. I believe their only thoughts are how to cope. How do we cope with this present circumstance? And it's easy to imagine that they're making compromises. One commentator on this text offers the following summary. In the king's pain, Esther and Mordecai's pressure, God's providence remains at work. Listen to what this summary is. This second chapter of Esther is a dark picture of sin and its consequences. The story provides us with an understanding of living in ancient Persia where people are treated as commodities, where women were often objectified and made victims, where men can be predatory, and where at least for some, fear is more powerful than faith. This is no fairy tale story of a poor Jewish girl falling in love with Prince Charming. Esther chapter 2 is a story the like of which when we hear it on the news, we can scarcely bear to contemplate. And yet here it is. Amidst all the moral ambiguities and the shocking abuses that dog Esther's steps, that you and I are invited to trace the footprints of the sovereign God who is working in and through despite the sin and the suffering that we find here for the good of those who love him and have been called to his purpose. We've already observed while God is never mentioned, he is the main character of the story and God is at work. And I want to propose to you he's the main character of your life whether you recognize him or not. He's a sovereign God, and he's at work in our lives in ways that we don't see, we don't fathom, we can't grasp, but he is who he is. Look at verses 16 through 18. Read these with me. So Esther was taken to the king Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibbeth, in the seventh year of his reign, and the king loved Esther more and all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. 
And he made a great feast, the Feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaims a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. Esther finds favor when she first comes in to you guys' presence. She finds favor from everyone who saw her. The king finds favor with her, sets a royal crown upon her head, decrees her as the new king, queen, and throws a feast for all the kingdom. It's pretty easy for you and I to read this story and to see ahead, to see the threat and to recognize God's providence here, right? But not so easy for Mordecai, not so easy for Esther. Jeremiah 29, 11 was God's message to these exiles. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, but plans to give you a future and a hope, even in their sin and their disobedience of remaining in Persia. In spite of their sins, God's people and their disobedience and exile, in spite of Mordecai's fear and compromise, despite Esther's sin of concealing her identity, God is at work. And if there was ever one who was fearful, any person who ever yielded to pressure to conceal his spiritual identity, to deny Christ, it was Peter. He swore that he had no relationship with Christ at all. You remember the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest? Peter had at least three opportunities to take a stand to affirm his friendship with the Lord, and he failed in every instance. And after Peter denies Jesus three times, they're in view of one another, and Jesus looks at Peter, and Peter, like King Ahasuerus, remembers And he realizes what he had done. And unlike King Ahasuerus, Peter weeps. The message of the gospel is our God is, though we fail him, though we lack courage, and though we compromise with this world, God still loves us and mysteriously continues to work in our lives and through our lives for our good and for his glory. Habakkuk says that our God, his mercies are new for us every morning. That is grace. I want to urge you today to trust God. To trust God when you cannot see the future. To trust God when you don't know what's on the horizon. To trust God when it seems like you're going through a test, a trial, and through some pain or suffering to trust God and to know in his providence he is at work. I've learned and continue to learn over the years the only way, the only way to cope with life, to live with peace and purpose and power, the only way to cope is through God with a personal relationship with Jesus and trusting in him. You can can try to cope through other things, through work, finding fulfillment, success, 
higher income, through sex, alcohol, drugs, pleasure. You can try to cope doing all of those other things, but the only thing in life that will provide peace and purpose and meaning to your life is your faith in God. Your faith in God. Let me ask you a few questions in closing. Do you find yourself trying to conceal your identity in Christ? Just to keep silent, to fit in, to not talk about God, not talk about your faith? Do you find yourself trying to gain approval from other people instead of God? More concerned about what that person or what he or she thinks about you than what God thinks about you? Who is influencing you? Who is the primary, what is the primary influence upon your daily life? And perhaps what sin or sins is the Holy Spirit calling you to confess and to repent of this morning? And remember the gospel. He is faithful and God is just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all sin and all unrighteousness. Why is God just to forgive you? Because a payment, a sacrifice has been made already for your sin. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross absorbed all the punishment that you deserved. That's grace and that's mercy. I want about you to invite you to bow and pray with me. Don and our musicians come.